Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible with me this evening and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, the 26th chapter, Matthew chapter 26. As we prepare for Easter Sunday morning and rejoicing in the resurrection, I'm going to ask you to strap on your sandals for just a few minutes this evening and walk with the Lord as He prepares to give Himself for our sins on the cross of Calvary. We're going to take a walk in the Gospels this evening, but we begin here in Matthew chapter 26 and the first verse. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said unto His disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. When you make your way through the Gospels, you'll find that the four Gospels dedicate just four chapters to the youth of the Lord. In four chapters, we discover the Lord's first years, his first, that should say four chapters rather than six, I apologize, we, we discover the Lord's first 30 years of life. The three and a half years that we know the Lord to be involved in public ministry are contained in 85 chapters of the Gospels. 29 chapters are dedicated to the Lord's last week. This becomes an interesting overview of the Gospel account. 16 of those chapters deal with the last six days of the Lord's life. And 13 of those chapters deal with the last day. If you look at the composite whole of what the gospel writers have given to us as they were led by the Spirit of God, somebody has well said that everything is a preface to the passion. When we look at the remarkable content of the last hours of the Lord, when you look at the last day of the Lord's earthly ministry, you'll find that there are 584 verses, 584 verses in the four Gospels that deal with the last day of the Lord's, the Lord's life. 219 verses focus on the Lord's betrayal, His arrest, and His trials. 365 verses describe all the other events. And when we say all the other events of that last day, we're including those things that we're familiar with, the Passover that he celebrated with the disciples, the high priestly prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane, the crucifixion, even the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection are included in those verses that are stated here. It becomes really clear when you look at the gospel record that the Spirit of God really wants us to focus on the last day. And seldom do we really do that. So this evening, I want us to focus on the Lord's last day, but we're going to even abbreviate that and narrow it in a little bit more. We're going to be looking at the last day of the Lord 
in his earthly ministry, of course, he's endless in his days, but in his earthly ministry, his last day, and we're going to look at the time frame between about 2.30 in the morning when he's arrested in the garden to about 6.30 in the morning, 6.30, 7 o'clock, when the trials are over. That period of time in particular will be our focus this evening. Of course, we know that the Lord had determined that he would journey to Jerusalem, that he had set his face toward Jerusalem. And we know that the Lord had a purpose for that journey. This was not some accidental occurrence that either brought him there or that took him by surprise when arriving there. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, then took unto him the twelve. And he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. He was going to Jerusalem knowing full well of the prophecies pertaining to his crucifixion. The psalmist had said in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53 says, he is wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities. He knew full well what he was heading into. He knew so well that he shared prophetically what the disciples would see before they saw it. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says something very important about prophecy. It's something that needs to be remembered in our generation as well. We as a church family are not used to those who would come amongst us and say, I have the gift of prophecy. But there are those today in the New Testament church who claim such a gift. And sadly, some of the prophecies that they share are filled with errors. No such conduct was endured in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 18 says in verse 20, the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. The test of the prophet in the Old Testament times was absolute 100% accuracy or the death penalty. The Lord Jesus Christ was not fearful of the death penalty when he shared prophecies with the disciples. If you take your Bible and go back just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read some verses, and as I read these verses, let's count the number of specific prophecies the Lord is ever so quickly, but ever so clearly, giving to the disciples. We start here in Matthew 16, verse 21. Let's count them together, shall we? From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem Now, would you say that's prophecy number one? Yes, because you can say you're going somewhere, but until it happens, uh, you've only made a prediction. But this is a prediction. He's going to Jerusalem and suffer. That's number two. Many things. That's number three. Of the elders, number four, but not just the elders, number five of the chief priests and the scribes, number six, and be killed. In that little phrase, we have seven specific prophecies that the Lord has shared. He's not done. And be raised, that's eight. On the third day, that's number nine. There are nine specific prophecies just in Matthew 16 and verse 21, but he's not done. Come with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, 
I want us to read the 18th verse. Behold, we go to Jerusalem. He'd already said that, so we're not going to include that as a new prophecy. And the Son of Man shall be betrayed. Now that's a new one. He'll betray, be betrayed under the chief priest, the chief priest we'd heard about before, so we're now at 10. And under the scribes, we'd heard about them before, and they shall condemn him to death. That's a death sentence. Now we're at 11. The prophecies are growing. Verse 19, they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. That's 12. To mock, 13. To scourge, 14. To crucify, 15. And the third day, he'll rise again. We're at 15 specific prophecies, and we haven't even begun. Take your Bible and go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And see how the Lord continues to build the specificity of these prophecies. It came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. All right, now he just added another detail. It's going to happen two days from now. At present, I think we're at 16 prophecies that he's specifically given. Let's try to go over the 20th verse of this same chapter. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the 12, and as he did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you will betray me. Now we're at 17. The betrayal will come from out of the disciples. We go to verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At this point, we're at 18 specific prophecies. He said, this is the last time I'm going to take the cup. Verse 31. Then said Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended. That's two prophecies. Not just some of you, all, and all of you what? Will be offended because of me this night. He just increased the prophecies by three. Not part, all, all what? Will be offended or frightened and run away, and even deny. And that will happen when? This night. For it's written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I'm risen again, I will go before you unto Galilee. That's prophecy number 21. Folks, when you begin to really zero in on the magnitude of the prophecies given in the Gospels and elsewhere with regard to Christ, we have a sure salvation that's demonstrated by that which is supernatural in Revelation. A number of years ago, I read about the law of compound probabilities. In the book Science Speaks, Professor Peter Stoner used the law of compound probability to assess some of the prophecies relating to Christ. So let me read it as it's shared. Simply stated, this law is used to calculate the odds against a chance fulfillment of such predictions when compounded by a specific set of conditions, requirements, or qualifications. The findings were carefully evaluated by the American Scientific Affiliation and were found to be, of sa be sound and convincing. By this method, he was able to show evidence that would rule out coincidence, chance, or human manipulation in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Stoner started by calculating the probability of one individual who could precisely fulfill only eight prophecies relating to Christ. He computed the odds at 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The same as 1 followed by 17 zeros. Eight specific prophecies fulfilled by one person. Odds of that happening, 1 
with 17 zeros after it. This is equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, specially marking one of them and instructing a blindfolded man to pick the right silver dollar on the first try. Now, some people play the lottery with that kind of odds. But when it comes to biblical prophecy, the illustration is apt that the number of prophecies with regard to the, with regard to the Lord are so fabulous that there's absolutely no way that anyone could ever count this as coincidence. In fact, Stoner then computed the odds of one individual that could fulfill just 48 prophecies relating to Christ. He calculated the odds at 1 times 10 to the 157th power, or 1 followed by 157 zeros. This figure is astronomical and beyond human comprehension. Are you ready for this? But Christ fulfilled over 300 distinct prophecies written by different men of different professions from shepherds to kings living at different times over a period of 1,400 years in three different languages from two continents. We just went through a simple exercise and began to count a few of the prophecies. It is an overwhelming thing and an overwhelming blessing. We should never become so traditionally minded that the resurrection of the Lord in Easter Sunday morning is anything to us other than spectacular to realize that we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords every Sunday, but to realize that on the Sunday that's upcoming, we rejoice because we see the bundled prophecies so bountifully fulfilled. We continue as we move with the Lord in this last day of his life. Go with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Where we zero in on the betrayal of a brother and I looked at that title that I gave to this section of what we consider tonight, and I thought it inappropriate. For in truth, Judas professed to be a brother, but he is no brother. We've opened our Bibles to John chapter 11. After the resurrection of Lazarus, the religious leaders decided that Jesus needed to die. What? Yeah, that's right. Lazarus, come forth. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. And following the indisputable evidence of Christ's power over the grave, the religious leaders decided that Jesus needed to die. John 11, beginning in verse 47. We can begin in verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and Pharisees and counsel and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. The Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should perish not. This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but there also that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. So angered by the resurrection of Lazarus, the council of the highest leaders of Jerusalem is now coalescing with one grand purpose. We can't let this man live. 
he has to die. The only undecided factors were the time and the means. But you remember we read from Matthew 26, they said, don't let it happen on the feast day. Can't happen on the Passover. I mean, there's so many people here and so many people have affections toward him. We don't want to risk an insurrection. It's not going to happen on the Passover. That's what we read when we started looking at this the last day of the Lord. But is that their wish going to be fulfilled? No, because the Lord's in charge. He has measured his steps and is fulfilling every prophecy. The betrayal that takes place. Judas came to an agreement. We can read of it by going to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. While we're moving quite a bit through these various accounts, at least we're staying in these four books, so it shouldn't take you too long to find Luke chapter 23. But before I read Luke 23, beginning in verse 3, Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 37, verse 25. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 37, 25. Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person. Cursed be he that taketh a reward to slay an innocent person. Luke 23, beginning in verse 3. Am I in the wrong chapter? Do I need to be in 22? Yeah, 22. I'm sorry. Luke 22, beginning in verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad. And they covenanted to give him money. He promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Get him alone. We don't want to risk an insurrection. Here's the money. Now you tell us how we can get him in a vulnerable place where no one is there to fight our arresting of him. He covenants with the religious leaders to betray the Lord. Now there are many answers to this question, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. Why did Judas do this? Now the Spiritual and right answer, of course, is he was under the influence of Satan. But that really doesn't happen until the Last Supper that we read that Satan fully possessed him. So let's talk about motivators. What caused Judas to betray the Lord? Steve? Money. Of course, he is motivated here by money. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who broke the alabaster box of ointment worth a year worth of wages and perfumed the Lord in preparation for his death and resurrection. It's interesting, Mary is not running to the grave of the Lord on Sunday morning. She'd already anointed him for his burial, and she didn't believe his body was going to be there, it seems, for her to have to anoint it again. Her faith was great, but it certainly agitated Judas. The Bible tells us about that in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, and we can turn there, and we can see the account of what motivates Judas. 
he's hearing now Jesus is talking about his death. He's not talking about establishing this kingdom that he had thought he'd be part of where he would aspire to be a somebody. And we read in John chapter 12, verse 4, Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Thus he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and he bore that was, which was therein. Verse 9, Much people the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. There's something we read by and don't think about in the intrigue of these hours. They didn't want just to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Verse 37. I have this verse marked in my Bible. I encourage you to mark it as well. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. What do we learn from that verse? There was a fellow a number of years ago here in America named John Wimber. He had been involved in rock music and he went to church and found it really boring. And asked after he went to a church service, when are they going to do it? When are they going to do it? And they, and people said, well, what are you talking about? You know, you know, the stuff, the stuff you read about in the Bible, when are they going to do it? <laughs> people said, well, we don't do that anymore. And Wimber put together a philosophy that's called power evangelism. And he started a denomination called the Vineyard. Power evangelism, what does that mean? It assumes that when people see the miracles, they will believe. That's a false assumption. Verse 37 says, they saw the miracles of Jesus and they didn't believe. Remember what Jesus said to the ruler, or the rich man rather, who had died? He said, this rich man, not Jesus said, I should say, Abraham said, the rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy and send somebody to my brothers. If somebody came back from the dead and witnessed to them, they would believe. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe what's shared in the revelation of God's word, neither will they believe if someone rose from the dead. Lazarus rose from the dead. They knew it, and they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus. They did not believe. Don't believe anybody that tells you if we could just see miracles, then everyone would come to know the Lord. Judas had agreed now, and the betrayal is discovered here in John 13. John 13, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had said thus, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you that one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked one to another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's he to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That that thou doest do quickly. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, 
went immediately out, and it was night. Nobody suspected Judas. He was the treasurer. Judas was good at what he did. He feigned loyalty while never really being loyal. He was seated at the Passover in the seat of honor. You say, how do we know that? Well, when, we were, when you're seated at the Passover table, they sat not like we Westerners on chairs with silverware. They sat reclining on the ground, resting on their left arm, eating with their right hand. So when we read that John was reclining on Jesus, John was on Jesus' right hand. That's the second most valuable seat of honor. Jesus is the host. The second most valuable seat next to the host is on his right hand. John is reclining on him. Peter says, psst, psst. hey, John, ask him, who is it? Jesus speaks quietly enough that the rest of the disciples don't hear the answer. Jesus says, it's the one that I'm going to give the sop to. He takes the sop and hands it to the person who's seated in the place of honor on the left hand of the person who's the host. Judas was seated in the place of honor at the Passover table. He hands him the sop. The Bible tells us immediately Satan came into him and possessed him. And he went out and many sermons have been preached on that little phrase and it was night because it was. When we pause and consider this betrayal, in truth, we can see the omniscience of the Savior. How's that? Well, you recall that Jesus is conducting the Passover. He has told the disciples to get the donkey for the triumphal entry, to get the upper room, to prepare for the Passover. He's in charge of every single detail along the way. And one of the details that we often look past is Remember the chief priest said, not on the Passover, not on the feast. We don't want to do this when everybody's around. We're not going to have an insurrection. So what pushed their clock forward? The betrayal. When Jesus said to Judas, what you do, you do quickly. Matthew tells us that Judas had asked Jesus, is it I? And Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Judas jumps up from the table he's been discovered. He runs to the priest because he's been discovered and the whole plot could fall apart. They've got to act now. They didn't want to. The whole council that comes together, they wanted that. The whole opinion that he had to die, they'd already decided that. But these moments that began at about 2.30 in the morning and go to about 6.30 in the morning of these trials, that was not according to their plan. It was his. Because it was the plan of the Father throughout the ages that he would die as the only substitutionary sacrifice and Passover lamb for our sins. So we look at the betrayal. And it's a proof of what John 2 and verse 25 says. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was in the heart of man. He already knew. He was omniscient. And he knew, John 6 and verse 64, who would betray him even when he selected Judas and even when he walked with Judas for those three years. And so we come to John 18, the arrest of the second Adam. John chapter 18. Judas 
literally runs out of that upper room knowing that he's been found out. And in John 18, we read beginning in verse 1, and when Jesus had spoken, the, spoken, spoken rather these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Sidron, which where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came thither with lanterns and torches and with weapons. Jesus went to Gethsemane. We know, of course, of the burden that he bears. The word Gethsemane means oil press. It's just a really fitting title. And if you've never traveled to Israel with us, you need to because it's a sacred place and it's still there. And you can, you can, I can't read these passages without envisioning every movement. There in the place called the pressing of the oil, Jesus was pressed out for our sins. And we think of Jesus going there thinking that he needed that place alone, but you need to think also he went there because he knew that Judas needed a place where he would be alone. And Judas needed a place where he would know Jesus would go. And Jesus went there knowing what was going to happen, that that would be the place of his arrest. And we read in this passage that Judas then, having received a band of men, see that in verse 3, a band of men, that the word there is a cohort, it's one-tenth of a Roman legion, A for the day if anybody knows how big a Roman legion is. 600? 6,000, yeah, J gets the A. 6,000 men would be in a Roman cohort. This is one-tenth of a Roman cohort. So most will tell you that it's at least 600. It could be up to 1,000 men. So when they come to that garden to arrest the Lord, let's ask this question. Why do they need 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers? What? They needed protection from what? It's the middle of the night. It's 2.30 in the morning. The disciples, the 12 Galileans who have two swords among them, that's not the problem. Not the insurrection. I don't think of the crowds. They're probably all sleeping, though the crowds were many at the Passover. I think the key to the answer to the question is probably found in John chapter 3 and verse 2 when one of the rabbis came to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. And in John 3 and verse 2, Nicodemus, remember how he starts the conversation? Rabbi, we know that thou art a prophet sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do, except God be with him. So, the people who have told the Roman soldiers to go and arrest him, know because they've seen what he's done in the case of Lazarus and many other cases, this man has genuine ability to do inexplicable, undeniable miracles. You better take a lot of people to arrest him. And if they have any Old Testament understanding, they would remember that there were other prophets that previous kings had tried to arrest. And one of them in particular, by the, <laughs> in the Old Testament, by the name of Elijah, when they came to arrest him, remember what he did? Woof, fire came down from heaven and wiped him out. There's a reason there are 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers going into that garden. And it's not convenience because no soldiers, it doesn't matter what era, want to get up in the middle of the night to go to a garden and arrest one man 
and have to have 600 to 1,000 people going. Folks, these religious rulers who were arresting the Lord, they knew that they had their hands full, and they didn't care. They were fighting God. When man gets to the place when he's fighting God, he, he belies logic. He will do whatever it takes to get his way. And as we look in this passage, we see a prophecy fulfilled. A prophecy fulfilled. You see, Psalm 41 says in verse 9, Mine own familiar friend, whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, he's lifted up his heel against me. I love the pictures in the garden, and I've alluded to it even by the title here. The Jesus who's the second Adam goes voluntarily into the garden to win a victory. It was in the garden that the first Adam lost it all. And it's in a garden that the second Adam is going to take upon himself the sin of us all in order to redeem us from the curse that came in the first garden. A prophecy is fulfilled and a power is revealed. We're going to go to Matthew 26. I don't think we'll finish this this evening. Matthew 26. Look at verse 37. Matthew 26, verse 37. And he took with him, this is Jesus entering into the garden, Peter and two sons of, the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And look how Matthew describes the Lord as he takes our sin. Jesus is displaying sin-bearing power. He began to be sorrowful. The Greek word is lupeo means to be sad with grief and very heavy, another Greek word meaning to be stressed, enormously stressed. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrow, paralupos. The first time sorrow was used, it was used up there in verse 37, just simple lupeo, now it's paralupos, same word, even greater sorrow, exceedingly sorrow, sorrowful. How sorrowful? Even unto death. So he says, tarry ye here and watch with me. Mark 14 says in verse 33 that he began to be sore amazed. His spirit so troubled, struck with amazement. He's revealing his sin-bearing power as the enormity of the weight of our sin begins to press him out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we go to Luke chapter 22 and we find that his power is not only to bear our sin, but he's going to display in Luke chapter 22 his sovereign power. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. He came out and went as, his, as was his wont, his typical pattern, to the Mount of Olives. So they all knew that's where he would go, and Judas knew especially. His disciples followed him. He's left the upper room now in verse 39 of Luke 22. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he was at the place, he said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down as he prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, that's the word from which we get, or that's a Greek word, agonia, our word agony. He prayed more earnestly and sweat as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. He touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hand against me. The Lord is showing his willingness. And as we go to John chapter 18, we see a little bit more detail of his willingness to be taken in a display of power as only John can declare it. John 18 verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them. Literally, he is running into the battle. He's not hiding from it. Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. It's an unfortunate italicis in your King James Version that says he. Always when you see an italicis in the King James Version, it means the translators have added it because they thought it would add greater clarity. It doesn't. In verse 5, I am. Well, we know that title, don't we? Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them, and as soon as he said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. He's asking for the release of his disciples. Because after all, the Bible has prophesied that none of his would be taken. And so he has shown his power and asked for their release. The Bible tells us, of course, that Peter in the heat of the moment, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up your sword to its sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now Luke tells us that Jesus healed that priest's ear. But did you ever ask the question, how do we know, how did John know his name? How did John know the name of this fellow, Malchus? You'll find your answer in the 15th verse. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and as did another disciple. Who's the other disciple in the book of John? It's John. He identifies himself in the last chapter. Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did the other disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus to the palace of the high priest. How did Peter get access to the palace? John knew the high priest. And John not only knew the high priest, it seems John knew the rest of the people around the high priest. For verse 26 says, one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman whose ear Peter cut off, said, did not I see thee in the garden? John knows who's related to whom in the high priest's house. He knew who Malchus was and he knew who Malchus' relative was. And that's how Peter got in there for the denial. All these nuances of what's happening. So let's end with this. We won't go to the trials tonight. 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam ran from God. In Gethsemane, our Savior ran to God. God blocked the Garden of Eden with a sword. Genesis 3 and verse 24. In Gethsemane, the Savior sheathed the sword. Put it away. In the Garden of Eden, an angel came to cast Adam out. In Gethsemane, Luke 22 and verse 43 says, an angel came to strengthen the Savior. The nuances of seeing scriptural fulfillment are rich and they're wonderful. And this evening as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection, we need to know that all of these things we've considered tonight, all of them are motivated by the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And every single little thing that we saw this evening in that bit of the storyline, we haven't even gone to the trials. Between the arrest in the garden and the trials, four and a half hours, from the time of His arrest to the time of His crucifixion at nine o'clock in the morning, six and a half, maybe seven hours. Maybe next time we come we'll get into the trials. But as you look at that period of time and realize nobody could ever have put that together, but God did. And he did it for this reason. He wanted to prove and show forever his love for you. And the marvelous work of the redemption that was accomplished by Jesus Christ for your salvation. There's no other reason. It's redemption's story. And so all the Gospels come together in this preface to this great celebratory moment so that we can evaluate it and say, our God is sovereign, and our God is strong, and our God really does love the world. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man will lay down his life for his friends. And God commended his love toward you, and that while Christ, or while we were yet sinners, rather, Christ died for us. Wow. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. I'm on the Colonial Hills Podcast.